0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Cybeat Podcast, where your host, award winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: I'm Deb Radcliffe, host of The Sidebeat, part of ITSP Magazine at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thanks for tuning in. In this podcast, we're speaking with Richard D, who has been speaking and writing about security and intelligence, UFOs, and now a spy novel, along with other edgy issues for 30 years. Before that, as a clergyman, he actually listened to other secrets for another 20 years. As he says about his latest book, Mobius, quote, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mobius, a memoir, quote, is the least untruthful account he can give of the life of a professional spy. Welcome, Richard.
2: Hello. How are you, Deb?
1: Good, so Richard and I go way back in this industry. I think I met him 30 years ago when I was at one of my first hacker conferences ever. I remember the standing ovation you got from about 3000 hackers in a packed session at DEF CON. And to me, it felt as if you were connected in a way to that community—a community that I'd never seen before. You feel, it feels to me like you became sort of a priest to the hacker world. And I know many of them rely on you that way. Can you share with us some of those early days experiences you had with the Hacker community and how it impacted you?
2: Of, of course. Uh, that first, uh, the first one I went to was 1996. It was CON 4, actually, but it was 26 years ago. I've been speaking there for 26 straight years. Someone wow. made a pie chart of how long different people had spoken there, and I guess I uh, I was in the lead. And since I've continued to speak every year, it's a lead. You don't give up until, uh, you know, like Serena Williams, somebody comes along and, uh, mm-hmm. and beats you. Uh, but it, it's been an incredibly important part of my life. Uh, at that first HackerCon, I felt like I was home. I understood uh, who was around me and they got it. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Kim Zetter, the journalist. Said that what she got when she first heard me speak at DEF CON was how much I respected them and that they got that. And these were, uh, at that time, young people, they weren't billionaires yet or millionaires. Uh, the industry wasn't a multi billion dollar industry. Uh, hacking was was very much on the edge, and a lot of the activity was of necessity illegal. And none of us really cared because we saw that the paradigm was changing and that what had been illegal was going to morph, uh, as it does when the context of an entire society is altered, uh, as the technologies were altering our society. Uh, The only way to get on in those days, to get to the internet uh, in in the early 90s, was to hack on. Uh, Young people didn't have endless bandwidth, they didn't have endless storage facilities like we do now. It wasn't all free or available for the taking. Uh, You had to go through your university server Uh, You you had to hack. And so you had to learn how to hack. And when you did that, you learned all sorts of other things. But you also discovered that you were attracted to that process and that activity because you loved the challenge of encountering a complex system that could be made to do things even its own makers or inventors uh, hadn't conceived or thought about it being made to do. Uh, I love them. It's it's really that basic. I love the people I met there. And that was also the place I connected with people from the CIA and from NSA. Uh, some were undercover. Uh, those were the days when uh, Spot the Fed was a real game. I was going to bring that up. Uh, I
1: remember the Spot the Fed sessions. I even in yeah. them. They were fun.
2: Yeah. My my friend, Ken Oltoff, I think was the first Fed spotted. Uh, and Ken actually became one of the closest friends I've ever had. We We just... Became so close, and when he died suddenly, sitting in a chair watching television, at 57, it was it was crushing. It was devastating to me uh, because we talked about everything, and other people I met there also uh, from the agencies um, became very close friends. And you mentioned being a priest; I had been a priest for about 20 years, and I. I became that because that's what I naturally was prone to do. I mean, I was empathetic, sympathetic, understanding, and I wasn't aggressively in pursuit of money. Um, and that was suitable for that task. So I brought the native skills or abilities to being a clergyman, but you do it for 20 years, you, um, you get better. You learn what to do and what not to do. You learn how to use those native skills and that's what attracted a number of the people in the intelligence community, as well as the security community. Uh, a number of them didn't have anyone else they could talk to uh, about the things that burdened them or things they wanted to explore. And so I became very close to people, especially from NSA, and and subsequently worked with them in a variety of ways uh, in, in, in that world, as well as serving as a confidant to a number of them. Uh-huh. So. Sure uh so it was it was just a win-win-win all around for me i love the hackers i grew with the con uh i learned from them it, it it was it was just magical it all goes back to jeff moss who yeah, when jeff i wrote to moss. him he said "Yep, you he said i'm a looking for, experiences, uh, for by the
1: way, about how devcon impacted us in terms of I felt the same way about the hackers that you do, and I also made tons of law enforcement and three-letter agency connections there as a journalist. So we have a a parallel story going on about the same time frame, too. Okay, didn't mean to interrupt. What about Jeff Jeff Moss and you?
2: Oh, I I was just saying that he put out an email saying, I need a keynoter for DEFCON 4, and I wrote to him, and he said, all right, we'll try it. And part of his genius was he gave people a platform, Uh, obviously, Thousands of people, yep. um, goons and, uh, and all. And if you did it, uh, you did it again the next year. And if you didn't do well at it, you didn't do it again. And that was his genius. He said, yeah, you can keynote. If I hadn't uh, done it well, I would not have been back as a speaker uh, every year. And, and you, as a journalist, brought a lot of those same skills. It's one of the reasons we connected with understanding and empathy. Uh, you had to present yourself to people so that in relationship with them they did not feel exploited but felt comfortable sharing with you that the data and the details uh both their life and work that you needed in order to learn and grow as a journalist covering that that complex scene and you did that so successfully for all these years
1: and going back to jeff moss and your speaking experience I know that every session you've done there has been standing room only. And we're talking, those rooms can fit thousands of people. Your last one, this previous DevCon in August 2022, you ended up having some commitments that you couldn't get out of. So you ended up sending a video of, you know, you did it over live stream Zoom, I I think is how you did it.
2: I saw uh, pictures uh, of
1: that, and that was a standing room only, also, even though you weren't even physically there.
2: That really surprised me. Uh, it was, I guess, the topic, and the fact that in uh, 26 years, you do develop somewhat of a following and reputation. Uh, and some people were interested in what I had to say. But yeah, we used OBS, uh, op- open broadcast, whatever service or system. Uh, it took a long time to get me comfortable with it. But they did. They provided all the technical support I needed to learn how to use it and deliver uh, the presentation. And they said, we'll we'll show it. And they said they had to close the doors because there were still people out in the hall when the room was full uh, who couldn't couldn't get in. And I was sent a picture of it during the talk by our mutual friend Mark Hardy. And I was uh, I was really shocked. I mean, yeah, there's a full room as full as can be. Uh, of people looking at a screen. Uh, and and it was a topic that they wanted. Uh, I got an email from the review committee saying, could you talk about UFOs again and aliens? And I had never talked about aliens per se. You know, you, we, in, in that domain, you, you use uh, weasel words like extraterrestrial. They're weasel words because you're distancing yourself from the full reality of what you're saying. Uh, and this time... They wanted it, and I delivered it, Uh, as well as a background on my work with UFOs over almost half a century, uh, what we think we know about what we call the visitors. And uh, they're they're humanoid often. Uh, They're they're living intelligent creatures because somebody had to make this technology uh, that has been so well-documented for uh, 70 years. We knew how it was 70 years ago. And the kinds of statements we're getting now from certain segments in the government about how it's real, and now it's being covered as news for the first time, in literally 70 years, since 52, 53, which is when the government decided to debunk it while continuing to research it. Well, what if they learned about the technology in the meantime? I don't know. I don't know anyone who does know. But we know that the statement made by uh, Coral Lorenzen, an early uh, organizer of civilian UFO researchers, uh, she said, "Daddy doesn't know," and mm-hmm. we think that's still true. Daddy doesn't know. Uh, if they knew how to do it, uh, I can quote Edgar Mitchell, Apollo fourteen, who said to me directly, "Richard," he said, "If we could do what those guys know how to do, they would never have sent me to the moon in a tin lizzie." And uh, and and he was right. Um, And other pals inside agencies have said things like, quote, Richard, they're here, they're here. Mm -hmm. Um, And my own exploration has has confirmed that. Uh, There's no other excuse for what's been observed. Um, But we still don't know how many who, what kind of civilizations or societies or what the agendas are, Um, even though we've been researching it scientifically and historically. Uh, literally since the forties. Uh,
1: is that why foam came about? When did you publish the book Foam? And that's the one about the entity that keeps coming back in human form, trying to get it right again.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's well, that was certainly uh, part of it. Uh, but but the alien in Foam was really uh, like Mobius, an alter ego. Uh, uh, my wife read Foam, and she said, uh, "This isn't an alien." I know this man, (laughs) no, no one else could have been so clear about what they what they knew and what they saw. Uh, He was someone struggling to become fully human. And those themes are repeated in the Mobius memoir. Uh, I did work closely with people in agencies and learned the some of the burdens that the work can bring. Not everybody, perhaps, but an awful lot of people struggle to live with identities that are never true, with never telling the truth, with having family life where you never tell your wife or your children or your spouse, your husband, uh, what you do uh, or, or who you are. And you develop over decades uh, such a distance from your core self, if there is such a thing, of that you don't know who you are. And I've had people say that to me uh, directly. so. And you it creates
1: a distance from the people around you. So in the book Mobius, I totally got that point that he couldn't have any real close relationships because he had to keep track of the lies he was telling all these different people about who she, he was. And I thought that was really interesting because I take the path of being super honest because I can't remember things like lie. Who right. did I lie to? Who right. did I say what to? But the other part of that that I also thought was very interesting was the fact that he could get people to talk to him um, and tell him anything. And so he holds all these secrets like you do. And you know I've had rough spots in my life where I'm a single mom reporter, and I've reached out to you at a conference in a hallway, and I've told you blah, and you've been very supportive, like a priest should be. Um, And then, but you're sort of sort of a spy in my mind too. And then I have an old pal at NSA; he's probably one of yours too. He's like a father to me. Same thing; Uh he knows stuff about me that no one else knows. Why am I telling an NSA guy this? Why am I telling someone I know who is a Secret seeker, my secrets. Why is it so easy for me to do that with people like you guys?
2: Right, I and mean, that's a great question. Uh, when I was looking for quotes to put on uh, Mobius, uh, I, I revisited uh, FX, who I was so glad survived a very difficult medical uh, event. And uh, FX wrote a beautiful line. He said, uh, "His something about my empathy is over the top. People want to empty their minds." to Richard, he said, something like that. Um, and I think what you're pointing to, and spies are often very, very good at this. Um, I, I I can't quote it because I don't have the manuscript in front of me, but uh, Mobius describes a spy that way. He was friendly, affable, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, and a liar, and a great liar. Um, to be a spy in in that kind of work, not analysis back at the computer, but to understand people that you're working with or recruiting or running, uh, you have to have a degree of empathy that enables you to understand them. The difference is what you do with it. And I was talking about that in relationship to being a priest with one of my mentors from NSA. And I said, uh, "I my goal is to create relationships so that the energy and information is a two way street that moves back and forth between us so that. Going back to being a clergyman, I can enhance your sense of freedom and uh, possibility in your own life, in your own power. And he said, we do exactly the same thing, but we do it to control people. And and that's kind of the critical thing. Now you can say, well, clergy control too. Everybody controls. And I think Jennifer Granick pointed this out in the interviews she did with me about Mobius, a memoir. Uh, she said, everything you're describing really is true of everybody and their relationships. Nobody discloses everything. Everybody holds something back. Everybody presents a persona. Everybody uses empathy to uh, enhance their power and uh, position in the relationship. It's just a question of degree, and and what do you do with it?
1: Yeah, well, do you use it or do you abuse it?
2: That's exactly right. And Mobius comes to the, after he blows the whistle in that book uh he says he's he's done nothing but use and abuse and exploit people and uh i'm waiting for paper to come to the printer so i can get out the sequel which is finished uh called uh the mobius vector awesome Um, you and
1: i are both on book two of our series by the way mine's also i'm waiting for it to come back from layout right now myself yeah
2: well if you have extra paper let me know (laughs) uh, my my printer does not want to print it on white papers it doesn't look good we're gonna wait but he He's at the mercy of the paper mills, and there's only one. Uh, he used to have four uh, that he could go to. Well, uh, and something it, about the publishing this,
1: industry, too, and traditional publishing might be changing right in front of our old people eyes.
2: Right, that's right. Well, the big publishers get all the paper. They have long-term contracts, and they buy in bulk, and that's why us little guys wait. But in Mobius Memoir, Uh, In Mobius, uh, the Mobius Vector, Mobius is now in a real relationship with a woman who, just like in Foam, uh, uh, Heidi, the masseuse, humanized the alien. Uh, I guess it's not an uncommon trope. There's this whole series on TV now uh, about the alien who's being humanized. Well, uh, Heinlein did that, too, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. long ago. And uh, it's not uncommon, but being uh, humanized. Uh, Mobius is practicing uh, not exploiting or abusing people. He's practicing telling the truth. And he's astonished that when you tell the truth, it's like he says a long drink of cold water on a summer afternoon. Uh, It just feels so good and it's so easy and effortless because the truth is always right there. Yes, that's why I
1: tell the truth. It's easy. Remembering lies is hard. When I used to watch soap operas in my unhappy married days, I'd be like, just tell the truth. Oh, yeah.
2: You just told the truth. Well, they never never do that. There's a a program my wife uh, is asking me to watch called uh, uh, Virgin River, I guess. Uh, And it's kind of a soap opera at, at night. And I watched several episodes and I say, why doesn't somebody just say something? Tell the truth. Uh, because, well, it would end the whole hour. Uh, So nobody comes clean in those things. They always hold it back. And my wife said, you don't understand. That's a very common thing for soap operas uh, where you're shouting at the screen, just tell them. Tell her. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: you know, I wanna go full circle here in this conversation. So you're involved in a lot of things. You, you psych. I believe I consider you to have a really strong. I think you might even have a degree in psychology. Um, your, your ministerial life, your speaking life, your book life, your, your tech life, and your life about aliens and UFOs. You have a way to tie all of this together as a lesson to the tech community, and I'd love to sort of wrap this up with how you have tied all this together and how you apply some of this to technology society. Can you go there?
2: Uh, Yes, I I can try uh, because that's a a great question and a difficult one, but uh, I've been interested in a lot of things, as you say, immersed in a lot of things. i love to live on the edges where anomalies and unusual ways of thinking and acting uh, emerge. Um, uh, and that characterizes all of those different domains that you mentioned for, for me. Um, uh, and you know, bottom line, Deb, I love people. Uh, I really, really love and relish interacting with people. And, uh, it was w- one of our colleagues in technologies, a uh, well-known guy who, who said, Richard's biggest problem is he thinks well of everybody. And, uh, he didn't think very well of anybody. He, if you listen to his talks, has mm-hmm. contempt for people he thinks are stupid, which is most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't. I really, empathy really does. I, I did learn in the ministry that if you listen to somebody long enough, y- you don't judge anybody. You listen with compassion because you get that if you had been them with the same inputs into your life as they had, you would have done the same thing they did. And I listened to everybody, uh, you know, who did the worst things and the best things and could understand how I could have been that person uh, if if I had been them. Well, that level of empathy enables you to cross over those borders into truly anomalous domains. Uh, UFOs, you know, have been ridiculed for so many years. Hackers have been ridiculed in the early days until they start making money. You remember when realized- the
1: police and the feds were going after the hackers, and they were the most oh, What's wrong with technology?
2: Right, right. The early days at DEFCON—you never knew who's going to be arrested and yanked off the screen, off the stage. Uh, for yeah, what and we be- saw a number of those a-
1: happen at DEFCON. I even saw it happen yeah, at Black Hat with a Cisco researcher.
2: Right, and I and I did work closely with some of those young guys. Uh, they were young guys. I thought of them as the lost boys. Uh, they were unfairly uh, persecuted. Uh, and especially as you know the world, as as I have come to know it, uh, so many people are doing so much worse and they're off the hook because they're ins rather than outs. They get away with uh, everything up to and including murder. Uh, and our current political situation is is in tatters because people are getting away with things that used to be prosecutable, um, high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, so with hackers, I I perceive that they were creating a new world. And it was the same in the UFO domain. We've known since the 40s uh, that UFOs were real. And mm-hmm. it's developing these resources and sources that enhances my appreciation of what that means. I was talking to somebody who was worked in the Pentagon for many years. And they said to me, the person sitting across the table from him, I won't describe the whole context. Um, they said, he said exactly the same thing you said. And what I had just said was that they're real. They've been here a long time and they're a real security threat. And I found out who that person was, was a vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
1: Wow. Um,
2: and a four star uh, Well, I've had a lot of those conversations where you don't divulge names, you don't give enough details for everybody to know exactly what you're talking about, but I integrate it. I integrate it and synthesize it in such a way that at some point, both with UFOs and with hackers transforming the mental space of society, you realize you've crossed over and you're never coming back. You have gone through the looking glass into a way of understanding reality that separates you, does distance you from other people because they live in what I call consensus reality, which is sustained and supported by agreement, uh, on the most shallow level, and you what constitute you a threat your to book? them. You call them um noobs? Humplings. Humplings. You you mean humplings? That was one of the yeah. words no. I have coined. Yeah, people use that term. That's my contribution in the English language, a humpling, somebody in the middle of the hump who just inches along behind the masters who manipulate and lead them uh, along the merry pathway. Uh, So at some point I realized it made speaking difficult uh, for a living because you had to choose your audiences. Hackers get it. People who live that way get it, but a huge number of people don't. And I've had people say to me from audiences, stop, I don't want to know that, or you're <laughs> scaring me. Uh, and I say, well, break through the fear, because then there's light on the other side. But a lot of people are terrified of difference and of the simple truth and of knowing what's real. Well, what a hallmark of real UFO investigators and hackers alike, as well as spies, is we all want to know what's real. We share that. Uh, I've been called a need-to-know machine, and I want to know what the truth is about the reality in which for a few decades of life I have been privileged to exist. Uh, What's going on? How can you not want to know what's real? Well, Mm -hmm. hackers are experts at seeing the mistakes people make about reality and preying on them. UFO investigators had to learn how to understand the tools of deception and cover stories and, and ridicule and all the things that the people with power do to try to keep us further from the truth uh, that they can't keep us from because we know how to get to it. Yeah. Uh, And a hacker knows how to get to it. And a spy knows how to get to it. And then the joy is using the truth you found, even when somebody else doesn't know they lost, you have won. And, And, and that's, my best stab at saying how those things all do link together. So uh, right. yes, I've worked I've worked in all all of those domains and they've mm-hmm. all turned out. Uh, the the newscasts on the reality of UFOs after 44 years I've been doing this. and mm-hmm. I knew it was real. Uh, uh, but, but finally, they're admitting it. Uh, the things that I claimed about technology got me ridiculed as an idiot. And now that world I described is absolutely literally here. And the things I describe about the future, I know I can trust. As equally insightful, uh, now there's a lot of AI in the talks. Because at robotics and normal people don't understand the nature of the transformation through which we are going right now. And that's one of the reasons for the political rage and confusion and helplessness. They don't know. And they don't know that they don't know. They just know their salaries aren't as high as they were. They don't know, they know that jobs aren't as available as they were. They got used to some fat times and those are they're very lean now, but they don't understand why. And they're angry and resentful and looking for something, someone to blame. And that's why we're really on the cusp of a real dangerous time. I did a talk just yesterday that was to a group of older white males, and put it that way. And I made some statements about the current political situation. And they just sat there staring at me. And I realized it was like the scene in Cabaret at the end, where the audience in the cafe has become the third Reich. And yeah. transition. And I realized we're in trouble. We are in real, real. And the
1: reality is this stuff is already here. In my third book, I'm 40,000 words into book three. I've just, it's been flying out of me, Richard. And I was looking up, um, I'm trying to get us all the way into a full on cyber war. So I've got the East coast power shut down uh, through ransomware attacks and uh, China and uh, France are also impacted. And I'm looking at this going, okay, so I really want it to be Russia and China ganging up and they're making, they're making it look like Beijing got hacked when China actually did it to itself as a cover. And I started looking right. for Chinese ransomware gangs because I was gonna name some of the Chinese ransomware gangs there. Were, I have Conti and all the Russian ones memorized, but I didn't have the Chinese ones. I didn't use the word Russia in the search. And I found that Russia and Chinese hackers are working together to create combined ransomware pro- programs already. And I was projecting that as a future thing in my third book. and. Things are right. happening
2: so fast right now that people just don't see it. Well, they don't see it. And and be, beyond that, but akin to what you're describing, I had someone describe to me uh, genuine uh, cooperation between the CIA and the KGB. Uh, and that was something people don't understand. They think countries determine identity and identity determines behavior. And no, expediency determines behavior. And can you ally with people who wants the same thing you want for the moment in the way that will make them helpful to you and you helpful to them. And you tell people the CIA and the KGB have worked together in some ways in the past. KGB, and I mean during the Soviet Union, um, people can't get their minds around it. And what Mm -hmm. you're describing is levels of deception, levels of obfuscation, uh, which which are executed uh, superbly. But you, you don't have to do too much to fool the normal Humphrey. Because- and it's
1: so easy to do that with cyber, too. You know, the hackers showed us that in the olden days with social engineering. And I like to call for the hackers hacks. the people you and I know and anybody who's doing it criminally or for abuse, like we talked about use and abuse of your empathetic skills, anybody who's right. abusing those. I just call them outright criminals or gangsters or state-sponsored actors. I don't like to call them hackers because I hate to muddy the name of the gray hats that you and I all know, the ones who warned us this is coming, the ones who are still warning us about cars and transportation systems and everything else that you can do with technology. And I know you feel the same
2: way. That there's I absolutely classics. agree with you. I once defined, I said a black hat hacker is a hacker. A gray hat hacker is a hacker who put the truth down and knows where it is. And a white hat hacker is a hacker who put the truth down and forgot where he put it.
1: <laughs> I love that.
2: Uh, that's, yeah. That, because that's you can't great, hack without hacking.
1: Yeah. That's a great note to end this on. I want to thank you for being here. We could talk forever and I'm sure we'll have another interview. Because we both go back so far and we have so many stories we can share um can you tell us i've got mobius a memoir available at amazon and themeworks.com t-h-i-e-m-e-w-o-r-k-s.com do you have any other place you would recommend they go pick up your books
2: uh that, that those are the best places if you write to me through ThemeWorks through the website uh same price as amazon um and I, and I give and i sign it and mail it to you so either one works and it's of course on kindle as well as in print uh through amazon
1: excellent thank you for your time and thank you audience for tuning in tune in next time we'll talk to you in the near future
0: we hope you enjoyed this episode of the scibeat podcast with deb radcliffe part of the itsp magazine podcast network If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.